All right. Welcome. Welcome to Know Your Roles, the podcast where we find those unexpected connections across all things pop culture. We talk film, sports, music, television, literature, food, and more. And we talk to some really awesome people in the process. I'm one of your hosts, Dave Kleinman, and this is my co-host, Mr. George Payton, Gordon Ramsay III. Take it away, George. Thank you, Dave. This is second Gordon Ramsay. Uh content that uh i've heard this week apparently um his new cooking show has got brian uh not brian but uh richard blaze yeah uh i hear it's quite good it's fun richard blaze and naisha are the other two naisha errington from top chef as well are the other uh two judges it's uh yeah he he's fucking everywhere (laughs) it's like who knew that like that 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 could have such a shelf life i mean that show was from like 20 years ago He's still out there, still doing it. Still doing it. Anyway, Dave, we've got a lot going on this episode. We've got uh, writer Mike Sachs, and we're talking about baseball players comparing them to potato chips. But before we get to that, how are you doing? I'm uh, like fairly amused at how many daily mistakes our mayor is making, <laughs> like in the press and all this stuff. He says something dumb like almost every day or something gets uncovered. Uh, I don't really want, want to talk about him, but the last thing that he said struck a, a, a memory for me which was that yesterday he he made a comparison where he compared being addicted to heroin to being addicted to cheese um it's a little bit of a stretch but it, it reminded me of when i was a 21 year old intern at a at a film production studio and ken marino came in and the the other intern shout out my buddy mike we were like nerding out because we were like state and stella fans and i think he could sense it and he made his way over to us and like started talking and chatting and joking around and somehow he we got on the subject of of making a spreadable cheese with drugs in it to go on crackers (laughs) um and uh get fucked up on so yeah it made me think of that that uh, hmm. great ken marino moment where uh he made my summer that day so shout out to uh ken marino for being a cool guy and uh eric adams for being a fucking dumbass uh george how are you doing man do good i just watched the trailer for the dropout five minutes before we got on this call so um it's amazing and i'm going to segue this into uh, one of our bar topics or when we get into the bar topics it's amazing like uh we're now making movies and tv shows about things that have happened like just a handful of years ago so like elizabeth holmes i think her trial just ended like a couple months ago and now there's a movie like a, a whole series with uh amanda seafried um the the trailer's great i love elizabeth holmes content uh i i think it's fascinating from the dropout podcast to that uh out for blood uh docuseries or documentary from a couple years ago so it comes out in March, and um, I'm sure we'll be talking about that a- again, like uh, down the road. But we've got a uh, we're going to be talking about a different series today, so yeah. so I'm pretty good. The, the trailer for the Dropouts looks really good. Cool, yeah. It. I mean, I'm I'm like you, and I'm pro Elizabeth Holmes content for now, at least until we're mm-hmm. done done with her. Um, speaking of the bar, George, what do you say we o- we open it up? Absolutely. Today on tap, we're going to be talking about the aforementioned Pam and Tommy, the series that uh, we're going to get into. So we're going to also talk about Brian Flores, who is suing the NFL for racism, and a musician who I have no idea why he's such a big deal, but he's a big deal on, on TikTok, and that's Oliver Tree. Uh, first, let's talk about Brian Flores. I know you have some thoughts, so why don't you go ahead? 
Well, I'm I'm interested to to hear you to hear you talk about it as well. This is something that we have talked about over the over the years. Um, you know, uh, just a tiny bit of background. Brian Flores, a head coach, former head coach of the Miami Dolphins in the NFL, uh, is suing the NFL for racist practices and hiring, and like all this stuff has come out. And like, you know, I think the upshot is anybody who's listening to this and and George and I like the idea that the NFL is racist, like that's a fact. We we know that. <laughs> we know that there's 70% just to break down the numbers, like 70% of the players are black. There's one black head coach, one after Flores was fired and David Cully was fired after a year with the, te- with the Texans where he basically got a shit hand and, and then got fired for it, which is like a pattern, you know, which is what Brian Flores was talking about when he was saying that like hit the fucking owner of the dolphins offered him a hundred K to lose a game. And then now, uh, Hugh Jackson, Hugh, ja- yeah, Hugh mm-hmm. Jackson, right. Yeah. Uh, who coached for the Browns, he is coming out and saying similar things happen while he was there, you know, and it's like a pattern where like black head coaches are set up to fail and then, incentivized to fail even and then you know they take the fall for the failure um pretty fucked up and the thing with the belichick checks where like he basically learned that the job was already given to brian dable before he interviewed you know super Mm -hmm. fucked up but uh but yeah you know hopefully this it's amazing the the last thing i'll say is you really do have to commend his fortitude and and you know the sacrifice that he's making that he is aware of because he knows that he most likely will never coach again and this is a man who said that he's put on this earth to coach you know this is a man who feels that way uh so for him to not be able to do that at the level he wants to do it because he's shedding light on you know the way things are and trying to make it better for others you know pretty pretty uh admirable so yeah, George, what what are you thinking about it? Uh, no, lots to un- un- unpack here. The uh, I think the thing that that I guess bums me out the most is that uh, Brian Flores is forty, and uh, in essence, he probably sealed his fate as far as ever getting a head coaching job in the NFL because you can't have both. You can't you can't get the job and and have the lawsuit going. It's just it's just not going to happen. So uh, and he knew it. He knows. Yeah, it. that kind of bums me out because it's like. Uh, of all the guys that have come out of the uh, the Belichick tree, he seems to be the most talented. I mean, you can give a you probably the coach of Tennessee is also from that same tree, but like uh, for the most part, the the Belichick disciples have been kind of epic failures, at least in the NFL. Um, uh, Nick Saban is a Belichick, Belichick disciple, but he's in college, but he also failed in the NFL. So that uh of of all the ones that have like that have come out of him it seems like he's probably one of the better ones again the coach of tennessee is also from that same tree so that kind of bums me out because it's like he's we're not gonna be able to see that happening the other thing to unpack here is like i think it was van latham said there isn't there isn't uh the black equivalent of lane kiffin and that's the other thing that kind of thinks is like no it's like once you once you lose a job you're pretty much you're pretty much done it's not you're not coming back uh, even though Levy Smith got actually got hired uh, yesterday, so. But that you know, that's he's an exception with a long career and like you know, not one of the younger guys. Whereas like you know, on the flip side, look at the guys last name. Look at the fucking white dudes with the last names that have been in the league for forty years. Uh, you know, and some of them they're good coaches, but like, 
they got there because of nepotism. You know what I mean? And it's like that's how you perpetuate this kind of un unequalness. You know? I mean, I, I like Levy Smith, but uh, the bear shop kind of went went south. What people forget is that before he took the Illinois job, he already he had another head coaching job. He was a coach of the Buccaneers. And that job went, went straight to crap, too. And then they went to Illinois, and Illinois not, did end up being great. I'm just saying it's just like it kind of um, – there are some uh, – there, there's some talent out there. But I think at the end of the day, the owners want to have – want to hire somebody that they want to hang out with. And it's less about, like, like how talented you are. Like, for example, like Eric enemy is the, the office coordinator for the Chiefs, historically one of the best offices in the, the league. The guy that works under him, the quarterback coach, got an office coordinator job. For another team so one of the underlings for the best offense got a job before the guy who runs the offense yes i'm glad you brought up the enemy because i'll also add byron leftwich into the mix because those two fucking guys were literally on every fucking person's list who writes about the nfl and who fucking mm-hmm. has anything to do with the nfl as top head coaching candidates going into this cycle and neither one of them is going to fucking get a job and guys who've never done the job before are going to get it and like it's ridiculous i mean you said you said it and I, you know i'll i'll go a little bit farther when you say that the owners want somebody that they can hang out with the owners are all rich old white dudes and they don't they want a white guy like it's racism you know what i mean like it it is uh but anyway george anything else before we move on to the next uh topic here just finally the uh one third of the league in the nfl is from the sean mcveigh uh coaching tree which is which is crazy <laughs> that's yeah that's nuts yeah one third of the coaching jobs are from sean mcveigh's uh yeah and that extends the 49ers coach's name excuse me but uh they're they're from the same coaching shanahan. Shanahan, shanahan shanahan mcveigh coaching tree one third of the league is from those two guys yeah wow that's insane the copycat league. yeah yeah it is well and it's yeah yeah again bunch of old white dudes in a room we shouldn't be surprised by the decisions they make coming out in favor of certain side uh all right george what do we let's lighten it up what do we what do we got next let's talk about pam and tommy the first three episodes were directed by the guy who directed i tanya i believe his name is uh gillespie craig gillespie i i found it the the first three episodes to be aesthetically pleasing I don't know if it's a show that needs to be eight episodes or 10 episodes or shit even longer than two hours because it's like I'm I'm already kind of fading watching it now. Like I said, as, as wonderfully shot, I think the act is okay. There's a lot of nudity, which I guess is what you're hoping for. But from what I've heard and what I've gathered, the last couple episodes kind of gives us an opportunity to sort of revisit the uh, the whole thing and how icky that was. Uh, I feel like there's a lot of shows, a lot of content from like the 80s and 90s in which we're able to sort of, whether it's uh, OJ, the people versus OJ, which gets to reevaluate how, how, how we treated Marshall Clark, or if it's uh, the, the, the new show, um, impeachment show, uh, the Bill Clinton impeachment show, in which you got to reevaluate how we treated uh, Monica Lewinsky. So in a way, I'm hoping that that's what happens with this show. And I think that's what does happen the last few episodes. We get to reevaluate how we treated Pamela Anderson, which is uh, at the time, and even at the time, I think I felt it was mad icky. And just revisiting that time from like twenty something years ago, it's even ickier now. I'm like, oh, what were we? What were we thinking? It was like, so 
in that respect, I'm hoping that's uh, that's what comes out of the show, and I hear that's what's happens what happens towards the end today. That's interesting to hear because I think my biggest criticism of it after the first three or four episodes, I also found it aesthetically pleasing. It definitely got like a similar vibe to I Tanya mm-hmm. and like these bumbling Midwestern, well, I guess they're West Coast, but like it's just they seem they have like small town type uh, uh, sensibilities and uh, you know committing some some harebrained capers, which I'm always in for. But but to your point. I have this feeling that most of the decision makers and like producers of a lot of the content now are in their late thirties and forties around our age. So like we're seeing all this rehashing of stuff from like the nineties, you know, and, and to your point, I definitely, I think just the culture as a whole has a, has a much different view in hindsight and like is understanding how those people were packaged and like how they were, you know, victimized, uh, those women, the ones you mentioned that were victimized by the culture and the press and, and uh, you know, the experiences that they had. Uh, that was my, that's my biggest criticism with it over the first three episodes. I didn't think that Pamela Anderson character was enough of a focus and like they were going into her enough. So I, it's encouraging to hear you say that like the, the last few episodes uh, re-examine that. Um, so, so I'll be, I'll be looking for, for, forward to that to that finishing out it's based on like a rolling stone article from i think like seven or eight years ago that's pretty cool too Mm -hmm. because it's like again like we didn't know i mean you know i was a teenager of course i fucking knew that the tape existed and it is Mm -hmm. what it you know um but i didn't know anything about like the fucking crime of it all and like how they and it's like there's the mafias involved and all all sorts of shit the 90s were for an interesting time for like I guess celebrity and as far as those guys is like because like um at the time like 94 95 Motley Crue was basically not done they're still probably doing albums and selling out stadiums it's like they would have been replaced by the Nirvanas and the, the Pearl Jams and it's like they were getting laughed at it's like it is over so at the time she was the bigger deal because she was on Baywatch and blah 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 and Playboy and he was just a guy he was a rock and roll drummer so I'm hoping to get into that a little bit too. There's like the fact that she was the like big deal, and he was like a guy that was kind of on the on the down on the downside. They have, I think that they have gotten into it, but again, per my criticism, they focus too much on him. They focus mm-hmm. too much on him as a character, and like Seth Rogen as a character, and like that whole thing. In that, like, you're, I'm just, I'm getting it because I'm inferring it because of what I know, and like, you know. Um, also like they, they do mention it a few times. Like there was a, he, he was watching like a, an MTV thing about, you know, about grunge and about Nirvana, Mm -hmm. like killing, killing hair metal. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, and like, you know, when they get married or something like he, and they, the, the paparazzi, like this is not, he, he did not deal with anything like this as a fucking rocker in mm-hmm. la in the in the late 80s and 90s so like yeah they that is interesting but like i said like they focus too much on him tell her story she's the one i want to know about like you know uh, i i think i do get to that uh, that's also the best scene in in the show when they're on the plane because they is like uh it's like what's your favorite movie i, I thought found yeah. that to be very very charming because they don't know each other at all yeah. and they got married <laughs> yeah yeah it's it's it makes for good tv it's uh it's entertaining that's for sure um all right, George, what do, you, what do you say we round it out for the last topic? Finally, we're going to talk about musician Oliver Tree. Uh, I found out about Oliver Tree from my ex-girlfriend. Shout out to Jackie P. 
he messaged me and he's like, have you heard of this Oliver Tree person? And I was like, no, because I'm not plugged in to what the kids listen to. And uh, for our listeners, Oliver Tree is like this, uh, this rapper, this country music singer, this TikTok star, this, I'm not sure what it is, but I, he's got the song, Cowboys Don't Cry. He's got some other songs. I thoroughly enjoy all his content and his, his videos are great. He's sometimes open for Tyler, the creator, and I can see them kind of kicking it in LA making, making, making silly videos. But he's got this one video in which he, the new version of him now is this country music singer. The old version of him was this, was this kind of like rapper that wore like very, very baggy jeans. And he's also playing the like the guy working in a, the in a, the recording studio, and he's playing all these three characters in the same video, and it's hilarious. It's like uh, I was like, "What are you talking about? I'm a country music singer now." He was like, "No, you're not. You're just like this." And it's like it's it's wild. So yeah, he has an album coming out. He's playing the Garden in March. It's like I I didn't know people could get this big off the internet, but Dave, I know you listen to it. So what do you think? You told me about him. I wasn't aware, but after listening to a couple of his tracks, I've definitely heard at least one of his tracks before. That the song "Freaks and Geeks" I had heard. I don't know what to call him if he's a rap. Like I guess I haven't listened to the older stuff where I guess he does kind of rap, but like a lot of it to me reminded me of like '90s mm-hmm. or like fucking like "Guided by Voices" or like some weird ass shit. So I can see why like the youngsters, <laughs> the guided youngsters, by voices, really? Yeah, it's like wow. yeah, because it's like some indie rock shit. When if you don't watch the videos, you know what I mean? Because like I watch the videos first, but then if I turn my if I close my eyes and you're just listening to the song, it sounds like some indie rock from the '90s to me. Uh, you know, but uh, is he's got a bit of a uh. Beck mellow gold kind of feel. Exactly, exactly. That's a good. Yeah, songs that don't make any fucking sense. But like, but like, are lyrical and like lilting and like a Mm -hmm. you know like a southern cal or not southern like a northern California vibe. Beck also might be northern California, is he? But uh, he's from LA. He's from LA. Oh, he's he's LA. Okay, well, but Oliver Tree, like we were talking before when you were like setting him up to me, you know, telling me about him. Uh, and you were talking about like people like Andy Kaufman and like people who, that it's a, it's a, it's a bit, you know, but they're so committed to the bit. And like, you know, I'm, I'm always really interested in like, mm-hmm. is it a bit or is it who they are, you know, or, or how much. And then I found, fa- I was looking him up and I found out he's from Santa Cruz and I was like, Oh no, it's real. <laughs> he's actually a weirdo. Uh, shout out to Santa Cruz. I say mm-hmm. that in the most loving yeah. way possible, but a uh, bunch of weirdos. So yeah, definitely he's uh and if you ever been there you or, or you're from there, you, you feel me, I'm sure you feel me. Um, but but uh, uh, yeah, he's entertaining, wildly entertaining. Again, uh, those videos. I mean, for his hair, for people that don't know, he has like a he has like a bowl cut. Like it's weird, man. He's going for a thing, mm-hmm. like a like an ironic thing. I I guess I I don't know, but I I like the music. <laughs> this is not bad. The uh, I watched a performance of his on Colbert, and his on his uh, I think he did it like two months ago. On his Wikipedia page is like rapper, singer, comedian, and uh, scooter enthusiast. And he's he comes out on stage and does like a flip off off a ramp, and then goes straight into singing. It's like what? <laughs> <laughs> wow! All right, scooter enthusiast. Yeah, thoroughly entertaining. Um, yeah, it's good. That's great. All right, George. What do you say uh, with that? We we close up the bar here. Yeah, we're all tapped out. Let's go talk to Mike. 
All right. Here's that. I uh, I also told George he's looking great. The uh, the mustache. It's applicable that we're doing like this ball player thing today because he looks like an old school like seventies eighties ball player right now. He does, man. He looks like a. <laughs> an, you look like an O's player from the seventies, George. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. We're definitely going to get into that for sure. Hell yeah! There's an amazing, an amazing uh, uh, Baltimore accent that you can do. <laughs> I look forward to that. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Where are you from? I'm from Chicago. Myself, okay. So, All right. so it's a, uh, it's, it's a, it's. I there's some similarities, you know, just in the in the overall, but it's it definitely its own thing. Isn't oh, it? it's definitely its own thing. It, it's yeah. um, it's heavy metal parking lot. That's what it is. Oh, so so Mike. We're, we're, yeah. we're just going to jump into it. There's a lot of things that I have on the list that we're going to talk awesome. about. Heavy Metal Parking Lot yeah. is definitely one of the things that we're going to mention. Yes, <laughs> let's do it. It's my favorite movie, man. I know it by heart. Um, uh, so, Mike, uh, it's like uh, I, I remember uh, quite vividly when we met, we were sitting at um, uh, Krupa and we I noticed your O's hat and mm. I think I was wearing like an O's t-shirt or something. And uh, you and I have very, very similar sort of like upbringings into like where we went to school you being born in virginia like i am living in maryland like i did and then going to school in the south so why don't you talk about your journey from virginia maryland to tulane yeah i was born in alexandria my father worked right across from landmark <clears throat> he was a dentist and you know i was for i spent the first few years in a lovely little development called virginia village which was just a you know ugly set of buildings in Alexandria. And then we moved to the Bethesda area and I ended up going to Churchill. Um, this is about seven miles west of DC. And then eventually I went to New Orleans, uh, to Lane um, for uh, four years and then lived there three years after, then moved back to DC and lived in Georgetown and Glover Park, where I worked for you know over 10 years from when I was in high school through when I got back to DC, eventually I worked retail. I worked at Kent Mill Records. And at that time, there were about 32 locations. It was a local chain. And they just sort of went bust as the big box stores came in at first. And then the internet came in. But I worked there for 10 straight years through summers and holidays and then full time after I graduated college. You have a book coming out, uh, Passing on the Right which is February 22nd, uh, the, the story of Skippy. Tell us about Skippy. All right. So this person, and now this, this goes back to our DC. I mean, I know this world really, really well. I know this world better than I know New York, and I've lived in New York for over 20 years. I mean, my heart is really in DC. These are you know, people I worked with, went to school with. You know, there's two DCs. There's marbled DC of Congress, and then there's Georgia Avenue DC, and there's also wonky dc which is government and then honky dc which is the people i work with in maryland and played softball with uh, it's a two it's a totally different type of thing you know people think of dc as one thing i think of it as um sort of a white trashy area where i grew up and surrounded by these people uh on the other side who are very entitled the brett kavanaugh types when i heard brett kavanaugh speaking before the um commission uh, two years ago now, I could see that the fucker was lying. I mean, I grew up with people like this. Uh, these were the 
private oh. school assholes who used to throw rocks or bottles at me in Georgetown at, from their convertible white beamers. You know, very entitled. Went to these um, restricted country clubs against blacks and Jews, and uh, it was like the other side for me. So what I wanted to do with this book was really uh, create a Kavanaugh type character who gets into comedy. So it's everything really that I hate about comedy and politics combined into one book. Was it really difficult to do? Did you have to like put it down from time to time because you're just so it made you angry? No, it was actually a, a pressure release valve because everything I was seeing, you know, I know that world really well. And I worked in that world. And, you know, the problem with what I see is that most of us just want to live a life, make a living, have a family, create and be good people. While we're doing that, there is this small percentage of people who are in Northern Virginia meeting rooms meeting as as we're getting on with our lives preventing us from moving forward you know they're still trying to prevent us from having rights when it comes to abortion they're still trying to prevent voting rights these people have devoted their lives to this and i know that world that you know they're all in northern virginia they're all a part of these associations whether it's the heritage foundation or any of these fucking freak zones so you know when I see what's going on, when I see what's going on with the Supreme Court, when I see what's going on with the conservatives, it just infuriated me because it has never ended. And it just it's almost like zombies outside the fort. We're just trying to live a good life and be a good you know, people, most of us. And these fuckers are constantly um, attacking. They're like berserkers. And when I see this, it just made me very angry. So when I got to write this character, he really is. I think the x-ray version of who I am, everything he likes, I hate and everything he hates. I like um, when it comes to comedy and politics, but I also wanted to get into this type of character who, and I see it more and more with comedy, you know, like a Jim Brewer who are, have a career, but it may not be going as well. And then they find that they can have this niche when it comes to this built in audience. If they say certain things, mostly conservative, mm -hmm. And that's always bugged me. And that's something I never really saw before. I mean, I saw it with Dennis Miller. I saw it with a few other type of comedians. But to me, this was new that you could basically, you know, comedy is all about having a lodestar directed towards goodness. And when a Dennis Miller or Jim Brewer come out and go after those who shouldn't be gone after, to me, that's the opposite of good comedy and comedy that lasts. And when I saw them doing this and then achieving success, on top of that, it was a new thing for me to, to to witness, and that really bothered me too. To see these people out there going after the wrong people, going after science, going after goodness, you know, leaning more towards conservatism and um, not being for those who are being downtrodden. That to me is everything against everything that I believe comedy should be. I was uh, not aware that Jim Brewer had gone uh, conservative. <laughs> that's he's that's how he's making his money now. Huh? I mean, there's a guy who had a very limited appeal, and I think, truthfully, he may have already always been an asshole, um, but he just sort of took it upon himself uh, to then go even uh, further right, and he now does appeal to these 
you know, these white GOP types uh, performing his comedy, complaining about uh, vaccination rules and government in our lives and all this stuff. And I don't even think, you know, I've seen reaction shots from the audience. They don't even find it funny. They they just want to hear what they believe up on stage said by a comedian. Um, Another thing that I've noticed, which really, really bothered me, uh, is the Fox News uh, attempt at comedy, which you will see whether it's Gutfeld or Jesse, whatever his name is. Um, you know, they they appeared to want to compete with The Daily Show for a long time, and they never could do it. They, they could never create a conservative version of The Daily Show. But about four or five years ago, they stopped doing that. And all they do now is they will mock people. They'll go to a bus depot, Penn Station in New York, and mock homeless people. Or they'll go down to Chinatown and mock people's accents or mock the way they look or mock the fact that they look like they're from karate films. And the fact that they would do this doesn't surprise me. The fact that people would enjoy watching this kind of shocks me because this is not, there's nothing clever about it. There's nothing funny about it. And to see it, it's really a bully tactic. I mean, so you send someone down to Penn station to tell the homeless people that they smell. Well, yeah, I mean, they're homeless people. And, you know, the, the heart behind comedy should be helping homeless people. Why are they homeless? Who's preventing them from, from getting a job and from work? And maybe they do need help. Not to go there and make gags about how they smell. That, to me, was a totally new twist, which really disturbed me then and still disturbs me when I see it on Fox. It's amazing. We get, comic relief was not that long ago. <laughs> well, that's exactly right. I mean, I was telling a friend, we used to have comic relief, and that was comedians doing good work to try to help people in need. Mm-hmm. And this is the 180 degree opposite of that. Not only are we not helping them, we're basically just flicking pebbles at them, going and shooting them in these situations where the Fox viewers can sit at home in their comfortable chairs and couches and laugh at them. And that to me is really, really dangerous. Do you ever have any fear doing a piece and a character like that, that people will miss it, that that the the iron, irony will be lost on people? Oh, all the time. Absolutely. Yeah, this has always happened where I've done a piece and people will get in touch. I mean, every review, uh, not every, but a lot of reviews, especially on Goodreads, they sort of miss the point, whether it's this book or other books where I've satirized uh, something. They think that I am what I am satirizing. What's interesting is with this new book is there's been a lot of people getting in touch with me on Twitter who are conservative, who have told me how much they are looking forward to buying the book. <laughs> and I wonder if even if they do buy it and read it, which I doubt if they would get the fact that I'm mocking that very type of person. I mean, there's always a danger in being confused with what you're satirizing and that type of satire, which used to be done in the early seventies, the slash and burn national lampoon. I don't think it's being done anymore. And I think people's humor IQ and satirical IQ have sort of dropped, which is understandable in a sense, because the world has gotten more frightening with these people. But I do think that there is room and a need to go after people by sort of inhabiting who they are and making fun of who they are by not coming right out and saying these people are assholes, by showing their assholes in their own voices. I mean, to me, it's almost like I'm playing a character actor role of an asshole. 
you know, a character actor isn't really an asshole or a gangster or, or what have you. Now, I'm not really this person, the Skippy Betty Madison, but it's in the first person. My name is not in the book. It's totally within mm-hmm. that world. And I wanted it as authentic as possible. And there is a way to like do both, right? Like a, like a Colbert, like the people that, you know, he was satirizing didn't always understand that he was satirizing them. No, you know? well, And that, that made us who got it like it even more. Yes. You know? Well, that's the thing. I mean, that Colbert is, was really, really complicated. It was like 3d chess because it was a guy who was playing a role where everything he said was meant to be shown to be the exact opposite of what Colbert mm-hmm. really believed. Um, yeah. With this character, um, I kind of do want people to think of me uh, as uh, being an asshole because I want, you know, this person in the book is really awful person. You know, he'll create ratings for homeless people. He'll uh, bang underage chicks in front of the Lincoln Memorial, basically everything that GOP mm-hmm. is doing. So if people do sort of confuse me with this character, I'm fine with that. I just don't want it to be people who should know better, who should be on our side. I don't want to be confused for the other side, which I think is actually a quite common thing where you have someone come out against someone uh, who is on their side. And that always kind of confuses me. It's like, I'm on your side. I believe in your issues. We're on the same side here, people. I'm just trying to attack it from a different way. People are like so they're they're already in the stance, you know, and stuff is coming at us so fast that people don't always like take the time to yeah, uh, sift through and be like, oh, this is what is actually being said. Totally here. understandable because really we are at war. This is a guerrilla war. I don't think most people uh outside of certain areas realize that. I mean, to me, it reminds me of like we're the red coats marching line in line and we're getting shot at by these uh soldiers hiding in trees you know i think this is truly a guerrilla war we're fighting berserkers these people have no conscience and if and if people are sort of like enough already and and too quick to attack those who um are on the wrong side i totally understand that but i think there has to be some satirical understanding that sometimes you have to um you know, go and it's like being an undercover, I guess, bike uh, narc or, you know, for the police, you have to go into that world to understand them and sort of take them down. And I really do think that there's a misunderstanding with a lot of people. I don't think people realize how bad most of these people are and how extreme uh, a lot of these organizations are. I mean, almost extremist Christian organizations, you know, you would see with Bill Barr and he's been involved with that for years or Brett Kavanaugh all these places are really kind of freak zones and they're very, very scary to me. And I don't quite think people realize just how bad they are. This is not a game. This is very, very dangerous. I want to backtrack for, you said something about like DC and like I'm born and born and I lived outside of it. DC is a very, very bizarre place. It's it's eight square miles and it's, but it's like, it encompasses like so many different kinds of people. The, the, the character that sticks out of my mind that, that, that like, in in history on tv is dan's character from beep that's the character who's like i've mm-hmm. met like hundreds yeah. and hundreds of times randy and yeah. skippy yeah. uh have you interacted with people like them or just like a bunch of times or just oh yeah well i mean i didn't know what i wanted to do for a long i mean i knew what i wanted to do but i couldn't really make a career so i would apply for these associations mm-hmm. and there's a million of them in dc 
And at the same time, I'd also work in retail. And, and the, the association world and the retail world of DC, they don't really mix. They're two different separate entities. The retail world can be, you know, you're 40, 50 years old and you're wearing chucka boots and you're still eating lunch standing up, working for $8 an hour, an hour without insurance. You know, this is a world that's very provincial. I, I had a friend who worked at Kentmore Records where I worked and he honeymooned at the um, Gaithersburg Rio, which is a fake lake uh, with some you know restaurants around it. There was no interest of his part to leave not only the area, <laughs> let alone the country, but just he, all he did was go 10 miles away to Rio. Then there's the other part, which is his association part, which is the white stockings and tennis shoes on the metro, you know, people coming from Bethesda into DC. It's a very, very particular word, world that no one outside DC even exists. I mean, I worked at associations that I didn't know what the fuck we were doing. You know, they would give me content to edit. And by the time I quit a year later, I was like, what was that? There might be literally a hundred subscribers to a newsletter for this association, but each of the subscribers were paying $10,000. You know, so just a very, very strange world. So I do think I know each of that, each of that type of character. And then even beyond that, there is the Discord Records, um, which was hugely influential to me growing up. Uh, Ian Mackay, uh, Straight Edge, uh, sometimes too straight in my in my eye. But to me, what Ian did in the '90s and early 2000s, uh, I'm sorry, in the '80s and early mm-hmm. '90s, was to create this creative world that didn't exist. I mean, DC was a barren desert when it came to comedy and music, and the fact that Ian Mackay could put out records on his own without a middleman to do it the way he wanted to do it uh not only the records themselves but to market it to a certain type this uh, cheap prices any age of these concerts to me was sort of magical because i had never seen that done before so that to me was a huge huge influence on me the creative aspect to just be in charge of your own thing to self-publish self-produce and get it out there and that to me he was way ahead of his time. This is pre-internet. Mm-hmm. The only thing that existed then were zines, basically, uh, in Tower Records and Yesterday and Today uh, Records in Rockville. You know, very few outlets. But that was the world that I sort of, uh, you know, gravitated to to create what you wanted to do and say to everyone else, "Fuck you. This is what I'm doing. Either you like it or you don't. I'm not going to get rich off of it, but at least I'm putting out what I want to put out." I love all this, and I and I love Fugazi and Minor Third. He is a bit on my shit list right now. Because I bought the uh, the Discord box set a year ago. Oh, <laughs> so wait for it. Have, you haven't gotten it. <laughs> I know the, the seven, seven inch, inch the seven inch box set. Yeah, <laughs> well, I mean that that's sort of a uh, you know he. I don't think he knew it was going to sell as well mm-hmm. as it did, right? And there's there's a, a backup with that type of thing. Like for him, I I'd wait if it, if it was Warner Records, I'd be all yeah. pissed off. But you're right. I mean. I'm just like salivating to get that damn box set already. Well, we got the email, I guess, like a month ago. And I was like, oh, shit, I fucking forgot I bought that. that yeah. A year and a half it's ago. Been, it's been so long. <laughs> but I think they sold, they sold out of that, which when you think about it, there's no advertising. It's all word of mouth. And mm-hmm. he's doing this 30 years later. And um, he's a fascinating guy. Have you ever met him? No. I've. Uh, it's funny. I used to wait tables in Georgetown. And apparently him and... Uh, Henry Rollins used to work at that Georgetown uh, Hagen right. Hagen-Dazs, yeah, uh, which is up the block from where I, where I used to uh, wait tables at. Um, where did uh, you work? What was the restaurant? I worked at Chadwick's. Oh, Chadwick's! I know Chadwick's. Yeah, Wisconsin. Good, uh, 
Good crab cakes. Um, Absolutely. Just imagining Henry Rollins at a haagen is hysterical. Yeah, I know. I, I mean, that's become sort of a um, a monument in D.C. for a certain type. Mm-hmm. Uh, right, yep. da- right down the road from the movie theater where, where I think yep. you know, at least Ian worked. That's right. Uh, that guy is amazing. He, he will meet with anyone. I mean, if you get in contact with him and say, listen, I'm going to be down in Northern Virginia. Could I stop by the house? He'll say yes. And what he what he's done is very D.C. He I think because he grew up in D.C., he's been obsessed with archiving everything. So when you go to his house, he will have leaflets, flyers from the very beginning. He has kept everything. That place is a museum which you don't see in punk rock typically. It's a very interesting sensibility. And I, I really do think it's because he grew up in D.C. and the Smithsonian. His father worked for the Washington Post. Worked for the Post, yep. Yeah. Um, and the, yeah, it's just I just find him amazing. And I later lived in Glover Park where he grew up. And just a kid who could come from that world and do what he did, uh, I just find uh, astonishing. I you know I give him all the props he's, he's done all the right things and his head has always been in the right place he's always been a decent person he's never taken advantage of the bands under the label uh mm-hmm. he's, he's never been an asshole like most people in music and for that alone i think he should be commended yeah him and steve albini are kind of like uh, oh yeah yeah are, are, are people who i thoroughly enjoy whenever i hear them talk about music and the music industry um, uh, I'm going to get into something else that we, we both rather enjoy. I am a big fan of the movie Every Which Way But Loose and <laughs> Smokey and the Bandit. So uh, why don't you tell us a little about Stinker Let's Loose? Because I found that to be, I saw that trailer. I was like, well, somebody has a corner that they enjoy as well. Yeah, no, I'm, it's a very, very, very specific point in time. And if you didn't grow up around that point in time, you looked you would look at it like it was from the moon or something i mean it was a very specific time in american pop culture it was jimmy carter was in office everything was southern related uh, very rural truckers were the uh, new urban here uh, the new heroes uh, american heroes but you know to me at the time it seemed like it lasted forever when you look back it wasn't that long that there, that the, this country rural um, trucking craze uh lasted it didn't last that long but when it did when it was out there it was fucking huge and everything was trucking related and taking it to the man this was all post watergate and the common man you know it's always the common man which basically just means a fucking idiot who drove a truck he was in charge mm-hmm. and he was going to give it to the the government he was going to tell it like it is so i grew up with these movies whether it was um smoking the bandit or any movie featuring an orangutan or um you know a, a hooper or any of this this honky shit oh, yeah. <laughs> and I, I was obsessed with it so i would you know i always loved it i loved the music uh jerry reed's music mm-hmm. and it just occurred to me that no one really had taken the piss out of it no one had really satirized it and uh this is seven years ago now maybe well actually no a little like six six years ago i uh got separated and divorced and i was going through a pretty uh, bad time. Maybe that's when you first saw me in your bar. I was drinking a lot. And I just thought, you know, I had been writing a lot for magazines and writing uh, fiction, uh, nonfiction for books. And I just thought, I want to do something that just amuses me and would amuse my friends. And 
I just want to do whatever I want, whether anyone reads it or I, I have no idea, but I just want to do this. And what I wanted to do was write a novelization to a non-existent movie. And this movie, this particular movie would be not from 1977. And it would be based off of those movies that I used to love, mostly Smoking the Bandit and the other orangutan movies. So I wrote this book. It took about eight months. Literally never expected anyone to read it. I put it out myself, self-published it. I mean, this all goes back to the Discord. You, know, you just put it out yourself and see if anyone finds it. And when you do put out something that you like and it exists in the world, good things tend to happen. I put it out. I, I sent it to a few friends and someone got in touch with me. Uh, he was a producer. He said, could I put this out as an audio book? And I said, sure. He said, but I, I can't afford the rights. I can't really pay you. And I was like, that's fine. You know, just do what you need to do with this. It's I didn't do this to make any money. And um, two months later, he calls me and says, uh, John Hamm wants to play Stinker. And um, and Ray Seahorn wants to be in it from Better Call Saul. And Andy Richter and P.F. Tompkins. I'm like, what the fuck? You know, it turns out John Hamm grew up in the Midwest, St. Louis area, and his father was um, worked in trucking. He was a dispatcher. So he knew this world. So if you grew up at that time, this was like sort of a, a bullseye. I mean, it just hit you very directly. So by writing that book and then it, it becoming an audio book um, through Audible and then a live performance, which was taped, um, it was just a very punk thing. Uh, and fun thing. And it sort of changed my bearings because it showed me that you can do what you want nowadays. You know, you have more power as an author than you've ever had in history where you can put out the book by yourself. You can design it, edit it, write it, and then it's done. And then two weeks later, it's out on Amazon. That has never existed in the history of printing or publishing. So the freedom that I felt by doing that and then opening myself up to other experiences what once something is out there was a real epiphany for me. And it's something that I really abided by. I, you know, Since I've done that six years ago, started, I really haven't written anything I don't want to write. And I used to do that all the time just to make money for magazines. Like, hey, can you write a parody of uh, Trump's tweets? Sure, I would do it. But I, I don't do that anymore because time is short and i i really do believe that if you get into creativity as a business you really have to put out what you want to do how you want to do it you have to be in, in control and life is way too short to work on something that you don't want to work on i mean i have friends who got into comedy writing and ended up doing you know writing for shit my father says or writing for a late night show they don't want to do that's not why we get into comedy. We get into comedy because we we fell in love with what we saw as a kid and we had fun with our friends and we were fucking around. We didn't look at it as a government type job, which we weren't into. So it really has been a good lesson to me in that you really, I really do. I can't speak for others. I really do have to do what I want to do. And even if it's looked down on or not understood or doesn't bring in much money, it is worth it to me because it's fulfilling and to work on something creatively that I don't want to work on is not only unfulfilling, but it's just um, sapping and it was sapping my soul and exhausting me. And I think too many people go down that road and before they know it, the career is over and they haven't really produced anything they're proud of. I mean, I think it's important that after a career, you have something tangible that you have on the shelf 
that you can say, I worked on that and may not have gotten great reviews or a lot of money, but at least I did what I wanted. And here it is. And it has weight. It has depth to it, density. I think that's vital, really, to any creative career. I want to talk about a couple of your other projects, uh, one being your podcast, Doing It with Mike Sachs uh, and Rob, which is a, a great title. I love the ellipsis in any title. Um, but uh, you talk to a lot of different people, really impressive people. Uh, you mentioned Better Call Saul. George and I were talking before we got on about uh, your episode with Vince Gilligan, who's somebody that we really enjoy. And and there's also, there's a couple other projects that you've done, your books, Poking a Dead Frog, and Here's the Kicker, where you're talking to comedy writers and, and comedians. And I, I wonder if in all these interviews and talking to people, there are, there's like just a bevy of things that you're now taking for your, your comedy writing, or you came in like, how is that process talking to all these people and what do you get, get from that? Yeah, totally. I mean, when I first started with the first book, it was called, and here's a kicker. This was in 2008 I or 2007. I started, it came out in 2009. This was really a very selfish pro uh, project. I just wanted to interview comedy writers whose work meant a lot to me and to pick their brains and to find out what they did that they would recommend to younger comedy writers and what they would recommend not doing. And it was also um, an opportunity to reach out to people whose careers were coming to an end, who were getting older, and I knew who wouldn't be around forever. So in fact, quite a bit of people that I interviewed for that first book um, have passed away. And it was so it was an opportunity to talk to someone like Larry Gelbart or Harold Ramis or any or you know uh, any of these writers uh, Irv Brecker who wrote for the fucking Marx Brothers. I mean, th this is just a world that doesn't exist anymore. You know, George, it sort of reminded me of Shirley Povich from um, from D.C. interviewing in early in his career Ty Cobb or somebody. I mean, like that world, that bridge mm -hmm. is gone now to that world. And I, I, or even like jazz musicians who were starting to die off in the eighties and nineties, I knew this, this early comedy, um, comedy writing scene would be disappearing. I mean, how many people alive now wrote or an even new Groucho? It's just very, very few people. So that was really my reason for doing that first book. Um, it was also at that time, there was very few outlets for this sort of thing. It didn't exist. There was no podcast. There are very few outlets that had interviews, straight Q&As with comedy people, maybe the Onion AV Club, but uh, just wasn't out there. And in fact, I had a very, very hard time publishing that first book. It was rejected by like 20 publishers because it just didn't exist out there. So um, what I want, my, my, my ideal reader was just some high school student uh, skipping math class to go to the library and stumbling across this book and thinking, this is, this is what I want to do. This is for me because I never really had that growing up. What I had growing up was basically two things. It was history of Saturday night live and the history of your show of shows. And beyond that, there was no interview with, with letterman writers or, you know, uh, Mr. Show or any of those people that I really, really loved. So I just wanted to put out something that was a little more modern, but by doing it, yeah, I definitely learned um, a few, quite a few lessons that were consistent throughout. And it didn't even matter how old the interview subject was. They could be in their 90s or in their 30s or 40s. It was basically the same. And that was you don't get into comedy 
to make money. You get into it for the right reason because there's really no other choice. And you have to follow your own lodestar, uh, whether people think it's funny at first or not, whether editors get it or, or producers or publishers. If you feel that it's funny, you have to do it. And another uh, lesson was that you can't stop. You have to keep going down that road. Um, part of success is just continuing. Um, and there will be highs and there will be lows, but at least it's going to be interesting. You know, you're not going to be working in the same job every day as an accountant off of I-270. I mean, this is interesting. So you should enjoy what you want to do. Put out what you want and have a good attitude about it be in it for the right reasons and never stop. And that was really the overlying uh, advice that I received from all the writers. And I interviewed maybe 80 total and maybe 40 made both books first and here's a kicker and then poking a dead frog. But everyone got into it for the right reasons, it seems. I mean, at least people whose work I really admire. Um, and that was that was a really big lesson for me that you have to be in it for the right reason. And that is just because you're, you know, you fell in love with comedy to begin with. You, you didn't go to law school or, or uh, medical school. You didn't go to business school. This is what you love and enjoy it and just uh, never stop. You got to interview uh, Jeff Schwartzwelder. What, what are some of the things you learned from him? Because he's notoriously known to not do interviews. John Schwartzwelder. Yeah, he was. Oh, um, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. He, well, it, it's funny going back to the books. I asked him uh, in the, for the first book if he wanted to be interviewed. And he's not easy to reach. He has a P.O. box number in California and very nice. Um, he got back to me. He wrote back and said uh, he appreciated uh, me asking, but he just wasn't interested. So when that first book came out, I sent him a copy and then I got in touch with him for the second book, which came out a few years later, still wasn't interested, but I sent him a copy. Now, I eventually uh, started doing interviews for The New Yorker, and that really was what um, interested him. It wasn't me, per se, although I think he liked the books. It was really that he grew up reading and enjoying New Yorker humorous. So for him, that meant everything. You know, that was my Mr. Show or whatever. So because of the New Yorker name, he wanted to, to do it, to be in the New Yorker. And he said he wanted to spread the word about his self-published books. And he's, he's putting out these books by himself. So he's in charge of marketing and everything else. So it really was the dual reason of New Yorker combined with wanting to sell more copies of his, of his books that he puts out that he eventually uh, acquiesced. And also it was it was it came down to he didn't want to do it in person or by Zoom or even on the phone. He wanted to do it all by email. And I said, fine, that's fine. In fact, I prefer that actually with writers to do it all by email because that's their strength is to get it down in words. So I think that sort of helped as well. And did that experience having these interviews, uh, um, did that lead to kind of the podcast as, as a way to extend that to, to also then interview people. I know this is something that happened, you know, years, years after those books, but is that something that you were like, Oh, I'd like to do that again. Well, no, the podcast um, came about before the John Schwartzwelder interview, like years before. And it was really, it was to talk to people and to put out little uh, national lampoon radio style bits. Um, 
And I did that for uh, you know two years or so, and I stopped doing it with the intention of getting back into it. And I actually have not gotten back into it just because I actually prefer to write than to talk to and interview others. You know, it's not something I love to do, and especially now where there's so much competition. It's I found that it was much more difficult to get someone to even get back to me one way or another than it had been back in 2008 when I started the process. And you know, begging for someone to talk to me is not really my thing. I've also noticed too that with a lot of younger comedy writers, um, oftentimes they just won't get back at all. But with the older <laughs> writers, Larry Gelbart or Brecker, they would get back immediately. And, you know, it would be in like 18 point font from their AOL email, but at least they were getting back to me. And even if they didn't want to do it, that was fine. I, but at least I, I just wanted a yes or a no. Like John Waters, I asked to be interviewed and he very politely called me immediately and said, no, I, I can't do it. And, but here's the reason why. And I thought that was incredible actually that he would do that. I mean, it's just a, a class act, um, which, I don't see with a lot of younger comedy writers, there's just nothing. You just, it's just silence. And that is sort of a pet peeve of mine. And I just quite frankly, don't really want to deal with it. Uh, mostly, uh, you know, even, especially if I'm not like a huge fan of, of what they're doing to me, it's just not worth it. I'm not going to go out there begging to talk to someone who might or might not want to do it, but you might or might not even find out if for another year or so. Yeah, you're you're, you're preaching to the choir over here because uh, <laughs> it's like Dave and I have been doing this for uh, I guess a year and a half now. And we still find ourselves mystified by like just just the, the non emails and people that we both know. I'm just like, but what, that's why we have a producer. Exactly. That's why we have a producer because <laughs> we can't be in charge of wrangling that kind of stuff. Well, I, I'm going through that now. I mean, I'm getting in touch with people I I know uh, in magazines, newspapers, and podcasts, and they're just not getting back to me about the new book. Again, I don't mind a no. I really don't. Mm -hmm. But how hard is it to just to show respect um, and get back to someone? I mean, I, my parents were obsessed with that. Like if someone mm -hmm. wrote to you or called you, you return the call and you write back. You don't just ignore that. I mean, what are you doing that you're so busy that you can't, you know, even beyond giving an interview for a podcast, how hard is it to sit in your bedroom and give a podcast interview? I mean, like, what are yeah. you doing that you're so fucking busy? But beyond that, just to not get yeah. back to someone, it just drives me crazy. I, I don't understand it. Just say you can't. Like, that. that's fine. Just say you can't. Exactly. That's it. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much, but I can't do yeah. it. I mean, that's Great. it. It's simple. And but But my question, too, is like, can you not do it? Like, what the fuck are you doing? Most people are not that busy that you can't sit there and talk about their own goddamn work i mean do you not remember where you came from i remember where i came from i remember working you know in aspen hill and in, in a kent mill records for six dollars an hour and selling the bodyguard soundtrack on c like i remember that i could still be fucking back there not selling yep. the bodyguard cd but i could still very easily be working retail in aspen hill maryland and i'm appreciative of where I am now and that people do want to talk to me. I don't yeah. understand people who feel they deserve to be where they are. And they're too important to talk to anyone else about it. it just, it just confuses me. It really does. Mike, we got a, we got to a lot of things, but uh, before we get to our game, we, we opened the show with this. We're going to talk about it a little bit and it is in my notes. And I told Dave is heavy metal parking lot. 
from the Judas Priest concert. What year is that, by the way? Because I've seen it like, I don't know, maybe 10 times. And it's just, it gets funnier every time I watch it. It's 85. I think it's 85. Okay. I mean, I used to go to Cap Center, and I'm sure you did too. I saw Absolutely. Prince, Purple, Re- Purple Rain Tour there. Um, I saw a ton of it. Rush, Journey, Sticks, all the shit bands from that era. That was my go-to place. So when I first saw this movie, it was like, oh, okay. These are the people I used to go to these shows with. And just the fucking scuzziest uh, down and dirty Maryland cheese balls <laughs> that you could ever imagine. And also what appeals to me about that movie is just, and I didn't notice it at the time, but that accent, you know, mm-hmm. and there's a few Maryland accent. There's a Baltimore accent. There's a Southern uh, Eastern shore accent. And then there's the accent, you know, like Winchester closer to Virginia. And this accent seemed to be mostly like Glenn Burney, like dead on Glenn Burney, Baltimore accent. That to me is just delicious. Like mm-hmm. it drives other people crazy. But to me, it's just like it almost gives me an erection. I love it. It's like, a, <laughs> like put, putting your face in a good stink and just smelling something that's just all like dirty, like, like bad cheese or something. You know, I love it. Yeah, those accents. It's hard to understand how the sound, how you make those sounds. Sound- yeah, it's not easy to do. I mean, when you see the wire, the only people who can do Baltimore accents are people from Baltimore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's it. Uh, otherwise, it, it's I've never seen it. The only people on that show, the wire, who, who can pull it off are the, the cops who are playing themselves. Basically, mm-hmm. you can't imitate that accent. It, it's harder, I think, than a, than a Boston accent, which is which is difficult. The uh, the guy who plays uh, Bunny's like right hand guy with the mustache yeah. is very, very Baltimore. He's an actor. very He's Baltimore one of the yeah. Yeah. cops. Yeah, yeah. He's that's like, right. To the point where I'm like, that's painful how Baltimore that is. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Well, it's painfully delicious. <laughs> you love it. You love it. <laughs> Can you do the accent? No, I can't. It's like, and I've tried to it just, it's just, it's too much. I think I, because I, deep down, I kind of hate it at the same time, but love it. I know you can. That's part of the reason why I love, I love talking to you. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was, um, I'm friendly with David Sedaris and I was doing that accent. And he like, he stopped in his tracks and said, what is that? <laughs> I said, that is a Baltimore accent. So he particularly loves this phrase. And sometimes I'll just even call him up and leave this as a message. I jump his bones. <laughs> <laughs> what I love about that, too, is it, it was a woman from Glen Burnie. And she's talking about the lead singer of Judas Priest, who has, let me tell you, she's talking about Rob Halford, zero yep. interest in jumping any woman's bones, especially this woman. 100%. <laughs> right? God bless yeah, him. Yeah, yeah. God 100%. bless. And the fact they didn't know that is I just find fantastic. I just love that. I jump his bones. That's my favorite scene in the movie. I jump his bones. <laughs> yeah, there's something about those smaller East Coast accents. Oh. Like, I'm, I'm from Chicago. I went to college in Boston, and I've lived in New York for 16 years. Like Those accents are all uniquely their own, but they all are kind of similar to each other. They all have some similarities and, and some differences, but like the Baltimore accent and like the, uh, the Philly accent, or, like oh, the gosh. Pennsylvania accent, like there's, I don't understand it. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's, it's because it, it, I want it. To, it's similar to those other like Eastern or like blue collar, like in uh city type accents, but it's, it's it's different. It's a it's, lot different. Well, Philadelphia is really annoying. I find that annoying <laughs> as shit. Whereas I find Baltimore very mm-hmm. melodic and lovely. But 
Philadelphia just drives me fucking crazy. And it could be too, because I used to go to the cap center a lot for the Washington caps or the bullets at the time. Um, and I would, you know, especially mm-hmm. during Philadelphia games, those fans were the fucking worst. There was no worse fans than Philadelphia fans for, for hockey, football, or basketball. 100%. I mean, there's always a goddamn fight near me, no matter where, what sport I went to the worst to deal with. So I always associate that accent with those horrible fucking fans showing up to DC to root against the caps. Yeah. Give me some water, some water. What? Yeah. That's a very strange one. Like too. What? Yeah. What is that word? That's not a word. Have you been um, down to ocean city, Maryland? I haven't. No. Uh, have of course you have. Joy. I mean, it is. How fucking Maryland is that place? It's very Maryland. Yeah, yeah. You going down to 105 Street for some rum and cake. <laughs> what I love about Ocean City is, and I don't know if you've noticed this, everyone has a cousin who works in Ocean City. Oh, I got a cousin who works in Ocean City. Yeah, he works for the Jolly Roger. You know, it's always a fucking cousin. <laughs> oh, I got a cousin who works over at Thrasher's. It's always a cousin who works his shit. Jolly Roger. Oh, that's good. Not to mention the big Pecker's Bar and Grill and the uh, Bearded Clan. Yeah. <laughs> you know, all these asshole teenagers <clears throat> buying these T-shirts these with t-shirts, like, uh, yep. Yep, yep, yep. you know, the big Pecker's Bar and Grill. Yep. Bearded Clan. How classy is that, man? It's, 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 <laughs> it's there's, a, there's a line in, uh, in Comedian, uh, Jerry Seinfeld's Comedian, when he's performing in Long Island. And I kind of feel the same way whenever I go home to Virginia and Maryland. It's like everything I hate about myself staring right back at me. <laughs> but i gotta say man i miss it do you miss it you're in new york now too bro yeah it's like, i miss that world I, I it's all of these areas are like they are underrated food towns yes dc and baltimore and all of that even like in, yes. in between that frederick yep. under underrated underrated food towns Totally. I mean, I was in Frederick about four or five months ago. I hadn't been there in years. Mm-hmm. And that foodie scene is fucking good, man. And they're not yep. messing around there. Nope. It used to be like a really farm type town. We used to look down on Frederick. It is a great place now. It is really vibrant, great stores, great restaurants, great yep. bars. I loved it. In fact, I think one of the uh one of the major cast members of Top Chef, his restaurant is in Frederick, Maryland. Uh Oh, I think uh, I know the, where that is. The Voltagios, right? The Voltagios, yep. His his restaurant's oh, in Frederick. Yeah. yeah, yeah. What's the name of the restaurant? It's called like something Volt Volt she or something, know. right? Like Volt Restaurant, some shit. No, I I think it's got farm in the name. It's like it's 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 but it's been it's been a thing for it's the one that's not with all the tattoos. It's the he looks like the one that looks yeah. like he's normal. It's the normal. <laughs> it's, the, it's the one who looks like he's from Baltimore. Like, <laughs> exactly. Uh, Maryland, like he looks like he's from Maryland. So, so Mike, here at the Know Your Rules podcast, what we do is we like to take two things that seemingly have nothing to do with, the, with each other, and we make comparisons to them. And for your episode, we're doing potato chips or chips to, to baseball players. I fucking love this. Uh, I, love I usually it. go first. Yeah. Oh, great. It's like I've got some love good ones for you. It. I usually go first, David, go second, and you as our distinguished guest yeah, yeah. go third. I'm coming out heavy with my first potato chip. It's okay. a one of one. I've only seen it one time. Mm, it's a Uts crab and red hot potato damn. chip. God damn that, it! That collaborate. Yeah, there's, <laughs> okay, I've, I've only seen it once. I've only seen it once here, and you can use the yeah. same ones. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So Uts okay. crab and red hot. 
That's um, a rare one. It's a rare one. I, in fact, uh, I, the bodega at the at the block had it, and I was like, "Where the fuck did you get this?" And he was like, "I don't know." He was like, "We just had them." I was like, "Uts slash red hot crab potato wow. chips." And because it's a one on one, I I wonder if I even imagined it. It was like, is that even a real thing? Which is why, yeah. as far as a baseball player, it is the Brady Anderson nineteen ninety six season. Oh, wow! <laughs> potato chips. Perfect. One on one is like I've never seen this before. It has never happened wow. again. So. Yeah, it's so uh, funny, Brady. I, my, my dad used to call me Brady Anderson because I had very long sideburns. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, that was yes. the only reason, not the the steroids. Well, I was. Yeah, that was probably the only reason. He was a good-looking guy, though. Yeah, and he, he, yeah, you're right, man. That one year, he was on fire. I think he had 50 yeah, home he, runs. I think he yeah. had like 70 in his career, and he had 50 in one season. Yeah, he something. Hit 21 something like was two up. years later, but okay. he never hit more than 21. Okay. Where is he? Is he still in that area? Where, I think he is. He he's from Silver up? Spring. Oh, yeah. I have a friend from Silver Spring. He's from Silver Spring, Maryland. Um. All right. So my uh, my first one, I like I said, we're we'll uh, I'm sure we'll repeat them. I I knew that you guys were probably going to go with crab chips being Maryland guys, but I had to do it as well because it's one of those things that like like I knew about crab chips. I probably in college, like way before I ever heard had them because like i met somebody from maryland and it was like oh these are the these are the chips crab chips and it, it seems so weird to me to put like seafood flavoring in crab i understand it more <laughs> now you know oh it's okay and but it seemed bizarre um but it's like i said it's a specific niche thing um and you can't get them like a, you can't get them in chicago so i wanted to pick a ball player that was somebody from an older generation before all of our times that was like for a lot of people, he was the guy, you know, and he'll all like, I mean, for all these people are dead who saw this guy play, but like, if you ever talk to one, they would be like, this is the best pitcher in the history of the game. And also from Maryland, that's Walter Johnson. Walter Johnson well, is that guy. Yes, like, that's perfect. Like, Nobody will ever be better than Walter Johnson. And they might be right. And people probably. that love crab chips will probably never stop loving crab chips. That's perfect. The big train. Yeah. There's a Walter Johnson high school near where I grew up. Which I think is the only, or was the only, high school named after a baseball player. There we go. What? All right, my <laughs> uh, my first. So I give the chips first, and then the baseball player. Correct. Yeah. Okay. So chicken flavored Pringles. Any idea? Who this might be? Oh, goodness. <laughs> this would be Wade Boggs. The same thing day after day, no change, but with a chicken flavor. And you know why with a chicken flavor, right? That's all he fucking ate was grilled chicken before every game wow. he played over his entire career. Wow. And uh, however many bud, buds he could drink. Yeah. Right. Means. That's yeah. another thing. Yeah. That's what I miss, too. Like, I miss people doing cocaine and drinking beer in the dugout. Me, too. Yeah. That is like doing shots and then fun. going out to the mound. Like, yes, yeah. Keith Hernandez coming out fucking stone off a coke in the goddamn World Series. For yeah. Yes. I mean, who does that? Yes. Um. All right, George. All right, my 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 next chip is a, is the first ballot Hall of Famer. Is Doritos Cool Ranch is a solid solid potato chip. Uh, and uh, my what I'm going for is consistency. So for me, the baseball player that is a Cool Ranch uh, potato chip, Greg Maddox, is like uh, it's uh, like 15, yeah. 15 games. It's like he's won fifteen games for seventeen straight se- se- seasons, which is perfect. A, yeah. yeah. So he's 
Greg Maddox is a cool ranch of potato chips. That's a great choice. Professor. Yes. Um, all right. My next chip is it's a very strong flavor, but it's a very it's a fan favorite, very popular. And it's one of those two in one, which is sour cream and onion chips. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, those are those are very strong flavors, but that's a that's a very popular chip. Delicious. One of my favorite chips because it's a dual threat. You got your sour cream. You got your onion, which is why as a baseball player is Shohei Otani. Shohei Otani. Wow. He can pitch. He can hit. What can't this guy do? <laughs> I like that. Sour cream and onion chips. Nice. All right. My next one is barbecue ruffles. And this would be. Barry Bonds. He's easily ruffled. There's a bad aftertaste, and there's something fake about it all. <laughs> that works. Holy shit. <laughs> all right. So, whew, I, I got to top that one. All right. My next one is uh, tortilla chips. I think tortilla chips are, are pretty good, but by themselves, it's just meh. You need salsa, you need queso, you need some sour cream. Which is why tortilla chips is the Alex Rodriguez wow. baseball player <laughs> by themselves, man. Yes, but with the other ingredients, perfect. Not bad. And actually, that would go for his um, announcing too. He's only good with others. Oh, 100 percent. Very good. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um. All right. My next one is I just looked for one that was like just one of the most bizarre flavors of chips I could find. I don't, I don't remember what brand they are, but there is a chip that is a cheeseburger chip. Mm, I've seen it. I've had it. Oh, there you go. Well, my theory is that you have to be on drugs to do that chip. <laughs> I was sober. Um, well, let, let me put it this way. You probably should be on drugs. Um, yes. Which is why we were just talking about baseball players doing drugs. And I'm going to give the, one of the famous examples of that. And that's Doc Ellis. Doc Ellis is a Perfect. cheeseburger chip because you got to be on LSD to enjoy it. And then he pulls off a perfect game. It's amazing. Amazing. I would that's like to see, choice. I would like, I would actually love to see like a, like a world series of players who were just fucked up. <laughs> There has to be a full team, right? Yeah. Every yeah. every um, every player out there on the field at, at every position has to be fucked up yeah. throughout history yeah. at some point, right? Yeah, well, I think mm-hmm. those Red Sox teams, uh, like the big poppy teams, like I think they were taking the they were the beer yeah they were out. drinking yeah. a lot like before and during the game and like that was yeah. the last generation to do that. Yeah, yeah, that, that was it. Probably yeah, yeah. too many. You can- you're mic'd up now or like whatever you know. Yeah, exactly. You can't say a thing anymore without. All right. My next, I'm going deep with the O's. And uh, George, I know you're going to like this because he is still involved with the O's. Well, I won't give it away. Let me just say this Cajun flavored zap zaps. Ooh. Okay. Do you know how? Okay. Now I'll give you a little hint. He's he's an announcer for the O's and he's a great one. Cajun flavored zaps. Albert Bell. No. Nope. Oh, okay. Because he's from LSU. All right. So Ben McDonald? Yes. Big Ben. <laughs> Perfect. Yes. He is fucking Cajun flavored zap. Love his accent. He tells it like it is. He's one of my favorite announcers. Um, there it is, Ben McDonald, Big Ben. Nice. Nice, George. So uh for my fourth choice, I usually throw in something that I'm just sort of like not in on. And this is my fourth choice is salt and vinegar. 
I think salt and vinegar is a gross flavored chip. <laughs> I don't understand it. I think it's very overrated, which is why for me, it is the Aaron Judge of ball players. I get it. People are out there like it, but he has like missed that, 142 man. games in three seasons. Yeah, so is he yeah. good? No. He's going to be just a, not for I'll, you. He's just not for me. He's also going to be a free agent at 31. <laughs> Who's free agent at 31? Right. That's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So my next one, I went with a chip that I'm going to choose to describe as clutch, which is just a classic potato chip, non-riffled or ruffled, uh, just a straight up greasy, salty, delicious chip. You can eat it with anything. You can eat it on your own. Again, I think it's a little underrated because it's not flashy, not a ton of like extra flavor, but that's why I'm going to go deep on my uh, Chicago White Sox and choose Paul Canerco. Paul Canerco, not a flashy player, but I'm telling you, watching this guy for the bulk of his career, I have maybe never seen a player who got a hit when needed more than Paul. Right. Solid ass player. And he always hit almost 300. He always yeah. hit three, 30 home runs, a hundred RBIs. And he had a great eye. And like, I always kind of like Paul Canerco because he wasn't good in the interviews because he just really took everything. So like he, he took everything out on himself and like, yeah, was yeah. very serious with himself. It was like, you didn't, uh, you're over four today. And he was like, well, I just got to get some hits tomorrow, <laughs> like some shit like that. Uh, so yeah, Paul Canerco is the classic potato chip. Wow, I like that. That's old school. That's an old school player right there. Love him. All right. Uh, my next one is a cheddar and sour cream flavored generic potato chip from the giant grocery in Darnstown, Maryland. <laughs> Specificity on point. We, we love yeah. it. Okay, well, this would be a total cheese ball. And he's been a cheese ball from the age of 12, a bandana wearing asshole. He was someone or something like this generic chip that I would never pick to root for unless I was desperate and totally out of any other options. This would be Bryce Harper. Wow. Total cheese ball. Never <laughs> liked him, even when he played for the Nationals. Yeah, I don't like it. Clown either. question. Clown question. <laughs> <laughs> Remember that interview when he did in Toronto? It was like, hey, you're in Toronto. You can drink here. He's like, that's a clown question, bro. Yeah. Well, the thing about him is I don't think he at, – at 12 years old, he just stopped learning because he was such a phenom, even at that mm-hmm. age. So he doesn't strike me as the most intelligent of baseball players. No. But can you imagine playing that baseball team, I guess, in middle school that on the team is him and Chris Bryant? Chris Bryant. Holy yeah. shit. Yeah, no, man. Yeah. Well, this was where in Vegas. Vegas. I mean, everyone in yeah. Vegas. There. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is Vegas. Yeah, they're all six five and one ninety yeah, right. by fifteen. Like, these the aren't hell? people from uh, from Baltimore. These are these are <laughs> no, they're not. real they're not. real Americans out there. <laughs> yeah, salt of the earth uh, stock. Um, all right, George. All right, so for my final one, I start off with an Uds potato chip. I'm going to end with an Uts potato chip because that is my favorite potato chip. In fact, I like Uts so much. I thought about getting the logo tattooed on my body and a girlfriend talked me out of it. She was like, don't do that. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, I still may get it. She's gone, but I still may get it. <laughs> so, and the Uts plain potato chip is pound for pound the best potato chip on the fucking planet. So I'm going to give it the pound for pound best ball player on the planet, even though he misses a lot of games and he hasn't played any meaningful games. I don't know if he's a good stats, bad team guy. But Mike Trout is the Utz original oh, flavor of potato chips. Nice. Yeah. Every there, day after day, doing this yep. thing. 
Yep. Yeah, that's perfect. He hasn't played any meaningful baseball, so I don't know how good he is, but he is great. It is baseball, yeah. so like it's harder to be good stats bad team in baseball. You know what I mean? Like you could be the best yeah. man in the world and you're still your team could still never be very good. Oh, totally. And he yeah. is I mean, look, look, probably the yeah. best. That's good. I like that one. Um Dave, what's your problem? All right. My last one is a chip. Again, another chip that uh it's polarizing. It's very polarizing because it's it's very aggressive in its uh, flavor profile, and that's voodoo chips, which is oh, uh, wow. salt and vinegar and barbecue. And it's a, like a, it's a chip that pisses a lot of people off, but it's also a chip that people will go to bat for forever and will always love and will always be convinced that it's the best chip ever. Which is why it's Barry Bonds. Barry Bonds. Wow. Uh, regardless of anything, there are people that will consider him the best player ever. I'm honestly, myself included, I believe he's arguably the best player, if not the best player, even with the steroids. I mean, he hit 375 after he hit 70 home runs. He's walked 120 times, whatever. We don't have to go into it, but the point is he's also an asshole. That's, that's also a fact that. That's the thing. That's, he he was an asshole to the sports writers. hundred percent. Not it was like Ted Williams. You can't be an asshole to the sports writers. Well, mm-hmm. and that's why he's not getting in the Hall of Fame. Um, right. And uh, I mean, I, if I, that's what I believe is why he's not getting in because we just saw Big Poppy get in. He he also admitted to steroids, but they like him. Um, well, they like he's a likable guy. Yeah. He visits children in hospitals. Yes. And Barry Bonds never did that. <laughs> mm-hmm. yes. But you bring up a good point. I mean, just because you're juice doesn't mean that you automatically get a home run. It's still fucking hard to hit well mm-hmm. and get a home run, even if you are juiced. The Br- it's like Andersons were few and far between. Right. I mean, it's like if you're juiced as a cyclist, like just because you're juiced up doesn't mean like you you float up to those mountains. It's still fucking mm-hmm. hard, and you may mm-hmm. the the percentage difference may be two percent, but I guess in uh, professional sports, that's all it takes to stand out is that just little bit. Yeah, well, and if you're Adam Dunn and you're hitting two, like he's not uh, suspected of doing PEDs, but but like if you're hitting two twenty and hitting sixty home runs, that's different than like literally this man hit three seventy five. You can't. It doesn't improve eye, hand eye coordination. Right. But the problem with Barry, he was such a fucking asshole. Yes, I mean, like, to say to some, you know, to say to a group of journalists, what do I stutter? Are you fucking deaf? I mean, you don't say that yeah. to people who are going to then vote you in or out of the Hall of Fame. You just mm-hmm. can't do that. Yeah, He had no interest in. Playing. Right. My last one is it doesn't even matter what flavor it is. It's just that one be grizzled and be grizzled half a chip, you know, burned in places, torn in other places. <laughs> At the bottom of a bag that you're just too fucking lazy to throw out. It just sits there for the entire summer. That would be me on the company softball team. (laughs) (laughs) No one wants it. No one wants to deal with it. It's just there. Nicely done. It's the last one, though. That's great. (laughs) Awesome. That was uh, that was a blast. I think we're uh, I'm, I'm satisfied, George. Uh, a thousand percent. The uh, I, I I knew this was going to be great, and it exceeded my expectations. George, I love you, my Maryland brother. Thank you for having me on. And you know what I noticed? You had that nine thirty club tattoo. That is cool as shit. I mean, that is yeah, old thanks, school man. DC for you. Yep. Love it. <laughs> I think that's that's the interaction George was hoping for when he got that tattoo. Yeah, 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 <laughs> goddamn right. Yeah. Goddamn yeah. right. People see it. I'm like, they're like, you from DC? It's like, yeah. yeah. If you know, you know. <laughs> by the way. George, you know who lives in in our area is Guy from Fugazi. Yeah, yeah. Does he ever I, come I, into the bar? 
I haven't seen him. Um, I've I've yet to to even because I'm not really sure what part of Park Slope he lives in. Um, but yeah, I've yet lives, to run into him. He lives in the northern to middle part, not the southern part like we do. Okay, because uh, because uh, one of our day regulars is um, uh, Mark Eyeball from Pavement, and I'm also a big Pavement oh, fan. So wow, really? We go there during the day. He hangs out there during the day. Yeah. What time you guys open at four? Right. Twelve. What? Yeah, because when I was drinking, oh, all right. I may just have to make a little, uh, a little. I'm definitely want to stop and see. It's been way too long. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Before we let you get out of here, uh, you have your book coming out February 22nd, passing on the right. Uh, Anything else where we can find uh, all the Mike Sack stuff? Well, that's uh, that's you know I'm on Twitter, uh, Facebook, Instagram. Well, thank you so much for doing this, Mike. Really appreciate it. Oh, guys, this is super fun. I really, really appreciate it. And George, my friend, I will see you soon. Absolutely, Mike. Good to see you, buddy. All right, buddy. Good to see you. Thank you so much. All right, we're back. Uh, That was great. Um, Thank you so much to Mike Sachs. Go ahead and check out him on all the social medias. Check out his website, mikesachs.com, and pick up Passing on the Right, available on February 22nd. That was a lot of fun. Uh, he seems like a, a good dude to uh, like catch a game with <laughs> um, mm-hmm. that Baltimore accent too. Love it. All right. Now we're going to go ahead and go into last call where we talk about the things we got coming up, what we're looking forward to on the horizon. George, what do you got for us? Well, it's it's Super Bowl weekend, but I don't want to talk about the Super Bowl uh, because like uh, I'll be watching the Super Bowl, but I do want to talk about three shows that I've been watching on Sundays for those listeners who don't want to watch the Super Bowl. Uh, one of them is Taylor Sheridan's 1883. It is a uh, Paramount Plus. It is the Yellowstone prequel. Uh, Yellowstone, for those of you who don't know, is a Taylor Sheridan show. It is the most watched show on TV. Um, Yellowstone is basically like it's just it's just like handy. It's like Dallas, or uh, I, I'm enjoying it. But the the prequel has been fantastic, and it stars uh, uh, her name is Edsel May. I think she's like a she's a yeah, uh, Isabel May um, is the lead, but um, her parents are played by Faith Hill and Tim McGraw, real life couple. Uh, some other cast members are Sam Elliott. Uh, Sam Elliott, right? Yeah, Tom Hanks makes an appearance in one of the episodes. Rita Wilson makes an appearance in one of the episodes. Uh, Billy Bob Thornton makes an appearance in one of the episodes. It's it's very very entertaining. Uh, some good voiceover work, great music, and it's just a straight up western. And we're living in Taylor Sheridan's world right now because uh, not only does he have uh, these movies that he's done that have been amazing. He's got a bunch of shows, and I think Paramount Plus just gave him like a do whatever you want to, and we'll just we'll just pay you see how it goes. Um, uh, that is a show I've been thoroughly enjoying. That 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 premieres or not premieres, but that is that airs on Sundays. So if you don't want to watch Super Bowl, you can watch that. Uh, I've also been watching season two of Euphoria, which also airs on Sundays. Um, uh, Euphoria is uh, is turning into like every episode is like these mini movies. And uh, last week's episode, I've talked to many people this week about it, is off the fucking rails. Uh, so much so that I felt nauseous watching it. It's uh, Zendaya is doing some some heavy lifting on that show. Uh, it was badass. So um, uh, the music has been great, whether it's Hit Em Up by Tupac, whether it's DMX, whether it's In uh, Excess was in another episode, whether it was the Jonathan Richmond. I was dancing at a lesbian bar in one of the episodes. It's it's the amount of money they're spending on music there is out of control. And uh, finally, yeah, right- a bunch of producers in their thirties and forties. 
Yeah, it's saying. like just they're, they're spending so much money on music. Uh, <laughs> and then the, the last show I've been watching is Righteous Gemstones. Uh, them, another one that's just doing like every week, they're just doing like an hour, uh, 45 minute, 45 minute movie. Um, and uh, Walton Goggins is, is a national treasure. I wish he was on everything. So, Dave, what about you? Walton Goggins is one of the most underrated actors in the, in he really he's, is he's, inc- he's, he's incredible <laughs> he, this, this character he plays on on jim stone's uh, baby billy is unbelievable oh man justified for me was like I, he was a fucking revelation um all right i just got a couple of quick things one is i don't know like if there's a release date for it yet but it is coming out soon because we got a snippet of it yesterday and that's the the put the new pusha t uh did you hear the guy coke the, like this oh my god I, I mean come on like that that did got I me very hear? excited yeah of course come i know on. you did i just you didn't read i thought you would have reacted like your face would have reacted already as soon as i said push a t so uh, <laughs> it was just it's, a slightly delayed reaction it's in my instagram story <laughs> actually right now oh, oh awesome um yeah well whoa that's all i gotta say to that uh so definitely looking forward to when that drops but there's a show that i that i've seen the the trailers for and and been seeing the press for lately that's premiering on february 18th that i'm kind of interested in it's called severance and it's a apple tv plus show which honestly for me that they don't have like the best track record i haven't i don't care about a lot of them i have apple tv plus because of i think ted lasso which be between you me and our list our listeners to me went like way down in the second season mm-hmm. um but this looks really interesting it's ben stiller created it or he's like the main producer of it and it's patricia arquette adam scott john Turturro, uh um christopher walken and like there's a bunch of other cast members as well it's a i think it's a limited series and it's like a dystopian futuristic thing story where you can have a procedure to have your work memories and your work life completely separate from your home life so you can't you can't access your memories from work at home and vice versa and and like you know it all goes awry basically uh it's really interesting. It's a really interesting concept and a great cast. So I'm uh, looking forward to that. February 18th. Uh, Severance on Apple TV Plus. You know, I watch everything. I don't have Apple TV. So I had a, this is a beef with the... I don't want to get into it. <laughs> I only have... We only fucking have it for Ted Lasso. And like, I've been considering canceling it every day basically well no i've been i've been meaning to get it it was because i wanted to watch the morning show because the morning show was awful <laughs> i was gonna say i was like not a good yeah not a good no, track i hear the morning show is awful like yeah I so mean, awful it's back to good and back to awful again so i've been i wanted to watch it for that ted lasso i actually hear it's good i'm not watching that but uh i watch some bad shit first the first season is good but you know it's like all these fucking uh all these services and networks, like they all have like their, their time where they, they have the hot shows or like, this is what everybody is watching. But Apple TV plus, like they don't, they literally only have Ted Lasso. There's nothing else that from the last like two years where you were like, everyone is watching this thing on Apple TV plus. Um, I, I, I hear people watching yeah. the morning show. Really? But, but yeah. hate watching it. Cause it's supposed to be terrible. 
Uh, like somebody he, said like it was good. I was like, no, it's not. <laughs> yeah. yeah it's supposed to be really really bad like sure i said the that? track record for it like that was one of the first ones where they were like the huge cast huge budget terrible um so i'm so i'm dubious of them you know but uh but yeah anyway uh looking forward to it nonetheless all right now we're gonna go ahead and find out what we got going on on our next show george give the listeners something to be excited about our next show, we're going to have uh, college basketball announcer Noah Savage. We're going to do a little college basketball NBA preview. That, that episode airs on uh, uh, February 25th. We're super excited to have this guy because he's a basketball junkie and announces basketball games. So let's go. Yeah, that's awesome. Super excited about that. All right, we're going to go ahead and round out this show. I want to say thank you to all of our listeners. Thank you to George. Thank you to producer Mary Best. Thank you to designer Amanda Zeller and Alan Takid, Nate88, and Kazo Oslo for our theme song. Please, everybody, rate, review, and subscribe to Know Your Roles wherever you get your podcasts. And everybody, be safe and stay healthy. Drink lots of water. And uh, bundle up. I see a lot of you kids just wearing jackets. It's cold. Yeah, and wear coats. Gloves, too. Yeah. Like, get some gloves. 